You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves How many threads lead us to a conviction of an innocent man out of the darkness into the light? I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, Murder Most Foul, sounds like a TV series, a conversation with Charles Bosworth Jr. and Joel Schwartz, authors of Bone Deep, Untangling the Betsy Farrier Murder Case. Charles is a New York Times and Amazon bestselling author of six true crime books, and Joel Schwartz has spent, wow, it's a long time, 30 years, he looks very young, by the way, 30 years as a criminal defense attorney in the St. Louis region. He has appeared on Dateline, NBC, 60 Minutes, CNN, and I welcome into the podcast, Arthur Periscope. Oh, it's not a step down from based on all the media appearances you guys have had in the past. Chris, not at all. And uh, let's go back to that thing where he looked very young. Flattery's going to get you everywhere. <laughs> I know. I've been doing this long enough, so I kind of know how to you know, get people comfortable, at least initially, to hear my questions, and then it may go downhill from there. Uh, is it, I'll, I'll go to um, Joel first. Is it safe to say the murder of Betsy Faria the Dateline NBC program and the podcast involve a tangle of lies and a web of deceit. It is extremely safe to, safe to say that. Let me uh, first correct you. It's Maria. It would be like Maria with an F. Thank you very much. Okay. So we got that done. And uh, tangled web and lies, deceit, any adjective you want to use, all appropriate. And it's somewhat even understating. I think it went a little bit deeper than that. Uh, beyond deceit, I would say it's corrupt, and I think that's a worse word to use. All right. This book, in my mind, in my analysis, is about relationships. Let's kind of first talk about how you two guys came together. I, this, it's a fine book, and I, I, I didn't watch Dateline. I watched the NBC series. I listened to all the episodes of the podcast, and it's a wealth of information there. But you guys put a lot more out in the book, Bone Deep. So, Charles, how did you come together with this well-known attorney in the Midwest? Well, oddly enough, uh, I did not know Joel before uh, we decided to, to work on this project together. Um, I had uh, been a reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch for more than 20 years uh, and a courts and crime specialist and had covered hundreds of trials. Uh, and I uh, had covered on several occasions, had covered Joel's partner, Scott Rosenblum, but I had never uh, had any contact with Joel before. But I was watching the, the, the whole Faria case over the years uh, out of professional interest. And uh, as I decided to retire from my uh, corporate communications job that I was uh, uh, that I'd been working uh, before uh, 2019, I began to, uh, to look at uh, the possibility of getting back into uh, to books. And for some reason, this case just had stuck in my mind. And, and just on a, on a hunch, a lark, I called Joel one day and asked him if, uh, if they had uh, decided whether or not they would write a book. And uh, Joel said that they, he'd fielded many, many offers and they had, they had not decided to accept any of them yet. Uh, so we got together and talked and we decided it was, uh, it was a perfect match. Um, 
it, with me being here in the St. Louis area and, and so close to Joel and uh, with my background uh, in, in the region and in the courts and uh, and of course his role in the, in the entire uh, the entire case uh, just seemed like a, a perfect match and and indeed it was uh, he's been a, a delight to work with and uh, uh, we put together uh, the product that uh, that you referred to earlier and uh, uh, we're, we're both very proud so it's a very famous picture, Joel Schwartz, of the scale of justice. And that kind of just stuck in my mind, that, that picture, that image. And based on my analysis of reading the book in terms of the first trial, is it safe to say the scales of justice will tilt it away from your client and the, also the wheels of justice were quite bumpy? And, and right now I can see you, the audience can't, and you're reacting, you're smiling. But a lot of things were put in your path that blocked you from, put, I think, putting on a proper defense of your client. Chris, what struck me when you said this, I never really thought about it in those terms. Do you remember the Roadrunner cartoon with uh, Coyote yeah. chasing him? Yeah. It gave me the, the image that came to mind was that 2,000 ton uh, weight that would drop on the Roadrunner or he'd run away from it. That's what I pictured when you said the scales of justice. There was nothing even remotely justifiable about how that first trial occurred. Um, anyone who has any inkling of what the law is and what the law should be knows the injustices that occurred within the rulings of the court and the rulings that pre uh, precluded me from getting into Pam Hub's motive, Pam Hub's prior and consistent statements, and the theory that I had about the case. But to go a step further, anyone who knows nothing about the law and just looks at it in a fairness point of view understands this couldn't have possibly been more unfair. And it was exacerbated by the corruption and the lies within the prosecution. So let's take a step back and both of you guys can interject your thoughts about this because it fascinated me. Once again, relationships, which I spoke about at the top of the, this episode, this podcast, Artful Periscope. Russ and Betsy, Betsy and Pam, and putting that into a stew, um, it was toxic. Is that a safe way to describe it? Well, I'll tell you that. Um, Russ and Betsy had a, a bit of a tumultuous relationship in their early lives or their early marriage dates. They had, within the last several years, rekindled their relationship. And then Betsy had been, unfortunately, diagnosed with this terminal illness, went into remission, and then was re-diagnosed. Pam, as we have learned, uh, had the habit of showing up when individuals were infirmed or sickly. So Pam and Betsy had been friends early on. But there had been no contact until somehow she found out that Betsy had cancer. Then she re reappeared in her life. And the toxicity came, well, it was always in Pam's mind, but the toxicity in the relationship came when she somehow, someway convinced Betsy to sign those insurance proceeds over to her. And as we have learned based upon some evidence that came about just prior to the second trial, specifically that letters that's referred to as PDOC, Pam knew exactly what she was going to do when that insurance was turned over, and she was going to, and she did kill Bessie. All right, Charles, as a writer, this is a nonfiction book, but if it was fiction, setting the scenes when Russ comes back from, quote-unquote, game night, and he walks into his house, 
What does he see? What does he experience? He's coming back from a, a weekly game night with uh, four or five of his friends. Uh, uh, this is a longstanding event. He, every Tuesday night from six to nine o'clock, it's about uh, 30 miles away from his house. Uh, and on December 27th, uh, 2011, two days after Christmas, cold, snowy evening in, in the St. Louis area. Uh, he comes home, he's been running some errands. He ran some errands on the way to game night. Uh, stopped and uh, and picked up a couple of Arby sandwiches on the way home, uh, and uh, comes walking into his the front door of his house carrying a big bag of dog food that he had picked up. Right. Sets it down, takes off his jacket, and steps into the living room, which is still decorated for Christmas with open Christmas presents lying around and the the tree lighted, and uh, sees uh, Betsy lying on the floor. Uh, crumpled in a in a very awkward position with a, a, a pink flowered comforter under her, um, and it's one of those scenes that you can't comprehend when you first look at it. He he thought has she has she fallen asleep on lying on the floor? Has she fallen down? Is she hurt? Uh, and then as he looks, he begins to see the blood. He begins to see the. The, all of the evidence uh, that, that she has been attacked. Uh, and, and he rushes to her side, screaming uh, her name, and uh, immediately realizes that, uh, that she's gone. She's beyond his help. Um, and to, to set the scene in a little, uh, as, as least grisly term as possible, um, she had a, had a horrible gash to her neck. There was still a knife protruding from her neck, right. but he saw a, uh, a very vicious gash to her right forearm, uh, which uh, immediately made him think that she had perhaps followed through on some threats she had made over the years to commit suicide. Uh, she did suffer from depression. She had made some threats. Uh, she had once even told a police officer who stopped her on a minor traffic offense that she wanted a gun so she could shoot herself because she'd just been diagnosed with terminal cancer. So Russ walks into this unimaginable and almost indescribable scene um, and, uh, and finds his wife dead. Uh, he was he was prepared to lose her in a, in a few years to cancer, uh, but certainly never foresaw what uh, what he encountered that night when he came home. So Joel Schwartz, the police manipulated their reaction to the nine one one call, saying this he's faking it. It's an, it's not true emotions. He's just seen his wife. He's he's reacting to a horrendous situation. And, and I assume right from the top early afterwards, crimes of passion come into their minds. It's the husband. So a lot of stuff going on. These crime, these kinds of murders really are 55 stab wounds, which you find out later on from the autopsy. So it was the first initial reaction. He did it. It was a crime of passion. Well, the, the first reaction is, is exactly what you stated. It, however, it came from the fact that he called in and said suicide. Um, they didn't know any of the background information that Charles just described about her terminal illness, about her previous depression and diagnosis. Um, so they jumped to that conclusion based upon crime of passion, based upon the number of stab wounds, and everything thereafter was what we have determined to be confirmation bias because there is no other explanation for the inept 
incompetent any adjective you'd like to use regarding the investigation. It couldn't have possibly been worse because basically Pam Hub was served up on a silver platter, yet they ignored every single thing that pointed to that to her because of this tunnel vision they had towards confirmation bias. When I speak to different audiences, I try to point out to them how powerful that is. Right. And for those of your listeners that are married, specifically more, more so even the men, you get in an argument with your wife and after a couple of minutes, she points out how you're wrong and what your point of view is incorrect. We all still stick to our guns and we insist that we're right. And we will ignore any of those facts that tend to prove us wrong. Well, in this particular case, it dealt with a man's life and let a murderer go free. And that's a dangerous concept when you're investigating. So when the law enforcement people come on the scene, they're looking for blood evidence. And I learned this by reading your book. One of the points of contention was when did Rigamore set in or when did it not set in? Because traditionally on the timeline, and Charles, you can come in with this because you've, you've researched and write a lot about this. The timeline says pretty much the murder, he arrived at nine something. To read the murder should have been three or four hours earlier based on Rigamore's. How did they challenge that? They decided that uh, that there was uh, a, a very rare medical condition that could occur at about the time of death uh, when there has been uh, a great deal of effort uh, by the victim. Uh, and it's, it's a temporary uh, uh, kind of early onset of rigor mortis. Um, and Joel helped me out that I've forgotten the medical term. It's, just, it's uh, spontaneous rigor. There's a medical term. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not even a proven concept, and most right. medical examiners have never seen it. And essentially what it refers to is, let's say there is a drowning, and you are grasping for a handle right. or a tree branch or something. There is this, uh, some sort of phosphate that's released in your system that can do that. But in this particular case, the prosecutor ended up arguing it was a conspiracy between Russ and the alibi witnesses and then this spontaneous rigor had nothing to do with anything. God, they really never took it on head on because they were going to have to call one of the EMT first responders along with the fire chief liars, and those guys stuck to their guns, thankfully, throughout. Conversely, this we were unable to argue this, but this would have happened when we knew Pam Hump was at the house. Right. So they just sort of ignored it, didn't take it on. Believe it or not, the jury kind of bought into whatever their argument was. And to this day, I still can't really tell you. So let's reset for a moment. This is the podcast, Awful Periscope. My guests are Charles Bosworth Jr. and Joel J. Schwartz. The book is called Bone Deep, the case that inspired the podcast and the series, The Thing About Pam, untangling the Betsy's murder case. So if you don't mind, because I think it's instructive, not just for myself, but I want to hear from both of you. I know there were a lot of roadblocks uh, placed in your way. We kind of talked about that in terms of the tilting of the scales of justice. So kind of both of you can interject with each other. Walk us through the trial. If I, if I remember correctly from reading the book, at the time, your son was 14 years old and your son said, I know who did it. Now, I don't know where he is right now. I don't know if he's in high school or law school, whatever. But your 14-year-old son said, 
come on, Dad. I know who did it, and it doesn't even have to. And we know who did it, and we do know who did it if you watch the TV series and everything else. But I got a sense um, by watching the TV depiction of yourself in the TV series, which it was amazing, by the way, and reading the book. To this day, I think there's a lot of frustration for you how the first trial went down. Yeah, I will say I love the series. I spoke with Josh Dumel, who played me quite a bit. The only the only concern I had is they easily could have made it two or four more episodes. And Josh was a little frustrated, as was I, that they didn't show the frustration and the emotional arc that occurred throughout all of the bad rulings and throughout the trials and tribulations surrounding this case. With that said, to get back to kind of what my son had done is I told Charles that story and he, uh, he said, boy, we have to have that in the book because it illustrated how basic this was. Now, he liked to credit all, and we all like to think our kids are smart and I think my kid is pretty smart, but he was a seventh grader. And this was the major case squad who was investigating this case along with Lincoln County who took it over. And they never considered Pam to be a suspect. I knew it based upon my conversations. I knew it based upon my initial investigation. And then I got the discovery. I sat down at my dining room table to go through it. And my son, my little boy said, dad, can I help you? He had never once read a police report. Right. He had never asked me if he could help. He sat down next to me at the dining room table and about 30 minutes in, looked at me and said, all right, dad, I know who did it. So let me interject something before we hear from Charles, because I'm embarrassed to admit that admit this, but I'm very late to the game watching Ozark on Netflix. And the reason, and once again, in in Missouri, so you guys, I don't know if you watched it or not, it's amazing television, great acting, and the arc is unbelievable. I'm about three or four episodes away from the end because I've been binging it rather than doing all the work I'm supposed to be doing. But the reason why I mention that is because these people come from Chicago and get involved in the Ozarks. And when an outsider comes in, there's kind of a visceral reaction. Did you have a visceral reaction? You're coming from the outside, this big shot lawyer who's portrayed in the TV series. And it's, you know, it's kind of like small town America and they resented you. Did that work against you, especially in the rulings of the first trial? Well, um, there's no question, but I don't know. The way I interpret this is I, I got the impression, I don't know if I've ever put this into this form, that the judge was kind of the nerdy kid Okay. wanted to play with the big kids and wanted to be accepted by the big kids. And there's no explanation for her rulings because frankly, and I don't mind saying this, it was idiocy. The rulings were just had no justification whatsoever. I think she wanted to please Leah Askey and then please the electorate out there is what it amounted to because it was an elected, judges in that county are elected. And as long as you serve the whims of the public, you can stay in office. Charles, I'd like to hear your reaction about everything we've spoken about so far. Well, Joel's exactly right. Uh, as I said previously, I've, I've covered hundreds of trials uh, and uh, covered some of the, the leading lawyers uh, in the country, including Joel. Um, and I don't know what kept his head from exploding. Right. Um, I've never seen a series of decisions by the judge and motions by the prosecution um, that uh, tipped the scales, as you referred to earlier. 
um, so badly against the defendant um, and 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 against justice uh, and and the search for the truth, which is what the trial is supposed to be. And uh, and it certainly wasn't the first trial wasn't at all. And it, it's very hard to explain. And, and I read the transcript of the trial and I would call Joel and say, "How? wait a minute, here's what I've read. Is that, is that right? Did that happen? How, <laughs> how did you, how did you keep from just going insane? Um, and, uh, and Joel rarely uh, discusses this, but he was so frustrated that at one point he, he told the judge, he said, your honor, he said, I don't know how to make you listen to me yeah. to hear what I'm saying. I don't know if I need to, to strip naked and bang my head against the bench or what, but I, I, I can't get your attention about the law and the facts and the, the case law and precedents, uh, all of that went out the window. And uh, the judge pretty much ruled as the prosecutor, as Leah Askey requested. And as I said, I've, I've in the hundreds of cases I've seen and witnessed and read about, I've never seen anything like that before. So uh, you, you mentioned and, the things that we're wrestling with in America today beyond this book and this initial murder case. And that facts don't matter. The law doesn't matter. I think what kind of turned it around for you a little bit, you had a Fox 2 reporter in the courthouse, and I think he helped getting a media attention for the case, but especially a media attention towards Pam Hupp. And that put her, I, I think she loved the spotlight, but ultimately it did her in, maybe it did her, I'm not sure about the ultimate justice in this first case. But the media exposure, Dateline, everything else locally and probably nationally helped bring the case to the forefront. Is that an accurate uh, analysis? Um, yeah, it couldn't be more accurate. Chris Hayes is who you're talking about from Fox 2. He, uh, this was during November sweeps when the first trial occurred. And I remember him. He, he had been in it from the start. And he was fighting with his producers. And his words to me were, I said, some guy killed his wife in Troy. Who cares? Why are you covering it? Why are we the only station covering it? Nobody seems to care. Well, he turned out to be the smart one there. Um, and then the media coverage, I believe, and I don't know how this occurred, but when we filed our Mooney motion, right. which is the motion that ultimately overturned this case, the court sent it back to the trial court without a response from the state, without a reply brief. I believe the publicity may have had something to do with that, but I've never, ever heard of or seen that happening anywhere at any time in the country. And I think it was just the information that had been provided by me to the Court of Appeals, along with all the publicity that had been out there, and the Court of Appeals was aware of, aware of must have somehow led them to what they did. Because I, I just still can't believe to this day that the court turned it around so fast and sent it back and didn't have a reply from the state. So if you don't mind taking a couple steps back, compare the trial, which was by jury, to the second trial. And you made a bold decision. And I think Russ has been in prison for quite a few years now, between being county jail and then prison. You made a very – you gambled. I don't know if you flipped a coin because you probably won't do that because you're a lawyer. But you didn't want a jury trial. You wanted a bench verdict. So how does that differ, and why did you make that decision? Well, here's what went into um, I happened to just be exercising one day, and this is after I had got the new judge appointed, a gentleman by the name of Steve Omer. Mr. Omer had been, Judge Omer had been a prosecutor in St. Louis City 
during the time of record crime. He knew a good case from a bad case. He knew a fact from fiction. And he'd been on the bench for a decade or more at that point in time, and I had been in front of him. And he's a fair judge. And that's all I wanted. And you couple that with the fact that a jury in Lincoln County, based upon nothing, no facts whatsoever, convicted Russ. And then I was drawn back to another conviction. Uh, it was a case out of Boone County, right. but it was a Lincoln County jury that had been brought up there that convicted another exoneree by the name of Brian Ferguson. So it, I kind of weighed all that. I was working out. I was going for a run. I went back after thinking this all through and talked to my wife, who's a seasoned, experienced lawyer. I said, oh, am I crazy to do a bench trial? She looked at me and said, yeah, you're crazy. Um, I talked to a couple of my partners who are, again, extremely well-respected, well-seasoned lawyers. They said, that's crazy, Joe. Why would you do that? Um, but my gut just kept telling me, they don't know the case, and I do. Right. There wasn't a fact that needed to be determined as to which party was telling the truth. And there wasn't a witness that needed to be relied upon as to whether or not they saw what they said they saw. So given all those, I just simply didn't want what happened in the first trial where a jury comes back and listens to some truly outlandish theory that's unproven by the state and convicts them. So I made that bold move and hindsight's twenty twenty. By reading the book, you had, besides a legal relationship with prosecuting attorney Leah Askey, who later on changed her name, you can talk about that, became very, very personal. So I'm fascinated by strategies in trials. I had recently did an interview about a major mafia figure, and because of his, his defense attorney strategy, he could offer a lot of cases. That was uh, Sonny Gavis. Well, so how was the strategy different, especially dealing with Askey again, and I guess her second chair coach or whatever the legal term is, how was your strategy different and how did she, she approach it? Um, she completely changed her theory. Uh, and frankly, during her closing argument, she didn't argue any facts other than who else could have done it, which was foolish because we know, and I was allowed to present, who else could have done it. My theory didn't change. My theory at this point was, I'm going to be allowed to get into the facts. Right. I'm going to be allowed to cross-examine Pam Hupp, and I'm going to be allowed to talk about the insurance or lies. More importantly, I had photographs, 132 to be specific, that disproved and created a perjury situation as to what the officers testified into in the first trial. And I had what I think is going to be a smoking gun now that Pam Hupp is charged with the murder, Spoiler alert for your listeners. Um, there was a letter in Betsy's computer that Pam Hupp had directed the detectives to from the following morning after the murder. And it turns out, while the state thought that would be a smoking gun, it actually was 180 degrees from what they believed. It actually showed that somebody other than Betsy created the letter. And it was shown to be created when we know Pam was with her. So given those two additional facts, um, and given the fact that I could get into the Pam Hub story, so right. to speak, for right. lack of a better term, that was the theory of the case. I just wanted it to be presented as it clearly was, and I knew that would win the day. On a reset once again, my guests are Charles Bosworth Jr. and Joel J. Schwartz, the author of Bone Deep. It's an, it's an, I can highly recommend this book because even if you didn't watch the podcast or Dateline or anything else or the TV series, there's so much in here that gives you insight 
into the criminal justice system, relationships, and much more beyond that. So once again, we keep mentioning your name. We keep mentioning your name, Charles, the elephant in the room. And by the way, Renee Zellweger's portrayal of her, I saw live stuff, pictures of her. She really captured the essence of that character, the way she talked, the way she walked. And the thing that always makes me laugh, the way she sipped her soda, because that's an <laughs> Emmy Award winning uh, portrayal because the, the noise she made and that tell and that mannerism was worth just watching the podcast, listening to the podcast and watching a TV series. So you're, you know, you're a writer. If you had to create this character, I don't know if you want to define her as evil or calculating or DNA damage, brain damage or whatever. She really is the hub of the wheel in terms of what's going on over these years of dealing with this situation. She actually, that's a a great way to describe her. Uh, She is uh, one of the most fascinating people that, uh, that I've encountered in a criminal case. Um, and you can sense Joel's frustration when he talks about it, but she, to the, to the person, to me coming into it from outside and, and having already some perspective on the case, um, the, the idea that the police and the prosecution and ultimately a jury would find her credible and would believe any story that she told was beyond my understanding. Um, she is, um, uh, well, you, you, you said Renee Zellweger caught her uh, very well, and, and she did, uh, because Pam is, Pam Hupp is just a remarkable character. Uh, she is, um, she, there's a certain flightiness to her, because she she has developed the ability to remember only the facts that she wants to remember, only the things that she wants to remember. And if you catch her in a lie, she suddenly can't remember that she ever said what you just caught her saying. Blah, 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 uh, blah, blah. That always stands blah, out. Blah, it's blah, in the blah, book blah. and it's in the, yeah. in the TV series. Yeah. And that's the essence of her. She's one answer. And it she really seems is. to get away with that. Blah, 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 blah. Incessantly. She does. She does. And and if, if anyone, there's a scene when she's actually uh, being sued by Betsy's daughters who are trying to recover the insurance money. And she's on the stand being questioned by the, the daughter's attorney. And she goes into this, I mean, you can't help but laugh. The, the attorney asks her something that's, that's gonna catch her in a, in a contradiction. And she does this, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, that's, and I, says, I, I well, got it wrong, but trying, yeah, yeah. it's the whoa, 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 yeah. thank and you. Just, and, and, then, and then she does it again. And it, it, it's just some of the most remarkable, and that's caught on video. The, the, the trial was uh, actually videoed by, uh, by, uh, by Fox. And um, it, it's just the most remarkable character that, that I've encountered. I, we, we can't explain the, the reason, the, the, her ability to establish credibility with, uh, with the police. Uh, the contradictions were obvious. Um, the, uh, and, and in some cases just outrageous, uh, there's a whole time element around, uh, Betsy's return home that night when, when right. Pam volunteered and, and actually coerced Betsy into taking a ride home. And as Joel said many times that Betsy, uh, that Pam kept inserting herself into Betsy's 
life that day so that she could get her home alone when she knew that Russ was going to be gone from 6 to 9 p.m. Um, and uh, uh, the, the timing element never worked. And we talked about it briefly before uh, when uh, the, the, she had to have been killed at a time sometime between shortly after 7 o'clock and 7.30. Uh, we know that because there were telephone calls made uh, in which she spoke and then ultimately in which she did not answer calls at 730. Um, and Pam is unable to explain how all of that works. She contradicts her story about where she was when she made these calls. And it just is remarkable that anyone would find any credibility there. Here's the part along a lot of parts that really captured my attention. She gets off the first trial. She gets away from that. The second trial, was, which is basically a fraud insurance case, she's, she's acquitted from that. Why did she decide to stage a murder? Lewis, how do you pronounce Lewis's last name, by the way? So he's mentally challenged. She's driving around claiming she's a producer for a dateline, looking for an, somebody to come to help to, uh, record something. This was not the first person she came across. She also came across a very key figure in the book, also ultimately tied to Russ, Kathy McAfee, which I kind of, I watched her in the TV series, and she's also an interesting character in the series and also in real life. Why did she set this up, tried to frame Russ one more time when she had gotten away with so much stuff, ultimately not convicted for Betsy's murder as we speak, got away with insurance fraud over the years. This is the case that sent her to prison. And my question is, why did she do it? Well, first of all, you're asking the impossible to get it. <laughs> but the belief has been this. After Russ was acquitted, I can't contact Rich Callahan, who was the city U.S. attorney here at the time. And it is in the book. And I said, Rich, this needs to be investigated. Somebody's got to do something or someone else will die. And I've known Rich for a while and he trusts my judgment. So he assigned a couple of two, a couple of U.S. attorneys to take a look and investigate this. Unfortunately, most of the evidence was still within Lincoln County. Right. So they contacted the ASCII, the prosecutor, in order to get the evidence. I can't say it with any certainty, but I have been told by different sources that Leah contacted Pam Hub and somehow made Pam aware that there was an investigation that was ongoing. So I can only surmise, and Charles and I have discussed it, that Pam got desperate at that point and did what she did. All I can say is thank God that that didn't happen in Lincoln County, because I don't know where we would be today, and my guess is based upon Pam attempting to frame Russ in that second or third murder. I think we might Russ might have been charged with another murder. So what is the status of the first murder case? Is, is, there, is there a new investigation? I know there's a new district attorney, I guess, a prosecuting attorney that replaced uh, ASCII. Uh, I don't want to editorialize, but thank God for that. So is there any new news about uh, going after the first murder? Because right now she's not convicted of it. We read the book. Everything points in our direction. We kind of know she did it. But even though she's in prison for the rest of her life, you, I imagine it's still, you still want some form of closure for the first murder. Charles? Absolutely. Uh, and that was kind of uh, the ultimate point of the book. Uh, there is, There has been no justice for Betsy. 
Um, and we made a decision early on that, that that's the way we would focus the book, uh, less on on the Pam Hub character and and more on the actual murder of Betsy Faria and the injustice visited upon Russ uh, as in, in his unjust conviction and, and imprisonment. Um, the this prosecuting attorney would defeated Leah Askey in the election after the trial. Uh, the first trial, uh, or well, after the second trial, I'm sorry. And uh, Mike reopened the case uh, and uh, put a lot of resources against it, hired a, a very uh, experienced assistant prosecutor to, uh, to, to help him direct the investigation, and, uh, and ultimately charged Pam Hupp with uh, Betsy Faria's murder. That is taking a very slow course through the courts right now. Uh, Pam Hupp's appointed, court-appointed uh, pro- uh, public defender, uh, the first one that she had appointed, uh, had a heart attack and died during all of this. And she, I think she's still waiting for a, a new public defender. So this is taking a very long time to, to get through the courts. Um, and and we think it could be another year or longer before the, this case is settled, before Pam Hub goes to trial. Um, but uh, it, it's clear, uh, you know, the facts are coming out. And Mike Wood uh, not only uh, directed the investigation so that she wouldn't be charged, but he is seeking the death penalty. Okay. And that gives you some idea of uh, against Pam Hub, and it gives you some idea of the strength of his case. All right, Joe, I left out one other suspicious death, Pam Hub's mother. That's also portrayed on the series. And uh, can you amplify on that? Because that elements of a lot of questions. She got away with that so far. I don't know if there's going to be a case based on that. But that was something that she was also involved with in a very deleterious way. I can tell you with 100% certainty there's an investigation that's ongoing. Um, I've met with the St. Louis County, which is a different jurisdiction. I've met with the detectives a few times. And given the fact that it was immediately ruled an accident, there was no investigation conducted. So you no longer have the original balcony that her mother allegedly fell through. Right. Um, and you no longer have what, what you didn't have is in that home where her mother was, there was no video. The doors were unlocked and her mother was not found for approximately 24 hours after Pam had left. So as a defense attorney, while you can argue, we all know she did it. We all know she couldn't have fallen through the bars like that. Who stood the game? Well, those answers are easy. The problem is you can't just, as a prosecutor, get up there and say, don't you know in your gut that she did it? Because in our gut, we all know she did it. It just would be hard to prove factually. And there is a responsible prosecutor in St. Louis County he does not want to go forward unless he can prove that she affected it. All right. So we end so, up. Right I'm sorry. No, can, finish your thought. I'm going to cut you off. I was going to say, as of, as of right now, the only thing that's occurred it was the ruling on her death was ruled accidental to suspicious. All right. So we, changed. we end every segment with the question I pose to my guests, and I'll start with Charles first. What did I miss? What did I get wrong over the course of our conversation? 
you did you did not miss anything. I don't think uh, you, uh, you you certainly cast uh, the kind of light on Pam Hub that should have been cast on her by the the police and the prosecution to begin with. Um, she was, uh, as, as Joel has explained and talked about how his son even picked it up, uh, she, she should have immediately been the lead suspect. Right. And, uh, and we understand that, that in, uh, the, the murder, uh, murder like Betsy's, uh, that the police naturally look at the in-laws before they look at the outlaws <laughs> and, uh, and they looked at Russ and, uh, and because, as Joel said, is because he mistakenly and, and in his panic and, and emotional upset at finding her body thought that she had committed suicide, um, that set the tone for the police. They, they said, you know, nobody would think this was a suicide. And if he said it was a suicide, he was trying to misdirect the police. Uh, which is an insane theory because nobody's going to suggest that it, they stab somebody 55 times right. and then are going to try to make the police think it was a suicide. Uh, and, and that was the, that was the, the biggest flaw in, in their whole case. Um, but uh, I don't think you missed anything. You certainly didn't make any mistakes in the facts. And uh, uh, the, the one person you mentioned who uh, who really uh, became an interesting character uh, toward the latter part of the case is uh, is Carol McAfee, right. who uh, who was. Uh, could have was Pam Hupp's intended victim instead of uh, Mr. Gunkelberger. Um, and Carol had the, uh, the savvy and, and, and the guts to, uh, to back out of that situation immediately and alert the authorities. Um, and that helped, uh, helped the investigation uh, into the Gunkelberger murder tremendously. And, uh, and beyond that, uh, she and Russ uh, eventually fell in love and, and are now engaged. And uh, and which is just a tremendous thing to see happen for Russ uh, after all of uh, everything he's been through. So, Joel, I'll pose the same question to you because legal. I have two lawyers in the family, by the way, so I know they're also they're very argumentative. You can never win an argument with them. They're not in the criminal defense field, but my my niece is out in San Diego and she's involved with some of these cases out in that area. So, legally or any way, any other ways, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? Well, I'm going to agree with Charles 100%. You miss nothing. However, I'm going to disagree with him 100% as well. Okay. In this case, it's impossible. You miss nothing, but you missed everything. And what I mean by that is it's impossible to encapsulate this to a 45-minute conversation. It's a, it's a character study. It's an 8- to 10-hour ordeal, and you would still walk away having questions. My wife, who knew everything from the beginning, she read the book and was like, I didn't know this and I didn't know that. And sometimes I speak and somebody will ask a question and she like, I didn't know that. And it's, I, I've been contacted by a few people and they have sent it to deans of a couple of law schools saying this should be required reading for every law student as to what can potentially happen. And believe me, Charles and I would love it if it was required reading for every law student. Um, so when I say you missed everything, we touched on every subject. It's just impossible. Every one of those things we touched on, you could go into an in-depth study as to the confirmation bias, as to how Leah Askey got into this, as to why the judge ruled the way she ruled. And so what I would say to your listeners is 
to get more, if you have any interest in this at all, there's a book out there called Bone Deep, Untangling right. the Betsy from the Murder Case. If you delve into that, and I will say to this day, and I know Charles will stand by it too, and you have continued questions, it's real easy to find me, email me, and I will answer any questions anybody has. Well, you're good, you're good in promoting the book, by the way, but you should promote the book. Both you guys did a great job. My guests have been Charles Bosworth Jr. and Joel J. Swartz. The book, once again, is Bone Deep. The case that inspired the podcast and series to think about Pam. Gentlemen, it's been an honor. It's been an education. And I pre- appreciate both of you joining me on the podcast, Artful Periscope. After the break, some final thoughts. Be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Final thoughts. I believe it was HBO just did a two-part series on George Carlin, one of my favorites of all time. And he had a very strong connection, by the way, to Lenny Bruce, the other one of my favorites of all time. And George Carlin said that the American dream only exists when you're asleep. So all of you out there, have some really good dreams. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at LarryDavidsonsProductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tied you to her kitchen chair She broke your throne and she cut your hair And from